0: Good morning, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Exodus 17. Exodus 17, our focus this morning will be on verses 8 through 16. Good morning, Bigwoods Church Online. Please do not try to adjust your screens. Facebook is not playing a cruel trick on you. Pastor Tim did not suddenly gain several pounds and a full head of hair. I am Matt McDermott. I am filling in for Pastor Tim as he is away this week, and um uh, a special hello as well and welcome to our moms happy mother's day to each of you it is a great privilege to share the word of god with you this morning and so with that said i I know josh just prayed but i I want to pray this morning as well gracious heavenly father god we just are in all of you god we, we we look to you in all things Thank you for life. Thank you for truth, God. Thank you for even the ability right now in the midst of a, a pandemic and, and lockdown that, that we can at least virtually meet as a body and, and study your word. God, would you, would you meet us here now as we, as we begin to open that word and, and unpack the text that you have for us this morning. God, I, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would, would lead and would do a work that I can't do this morning. I pray that, that what is said that is, is glorifying to you and it's edifying to those who are listening this morning, God. Oh God, would you be glorified in, in everything that I think, say, and do in the next 20 minutes, 30 minutes, in your son's name. Amen. This morning we'll be continuing on in our series, Exodus, Exit to Promise and Purpose. And just in way of review... We've been following the Israelites from the the beginning of their journey, from the beginning of their their story where they were in bondage in Egypt. And the Israelite leader Moses says to Pharaoh, he says, Let my people go. But it's it's Pharaoh's response to Moses that that I believe is the, the focal point of the entire book of Exodus. Pharaoh arrogantly responds, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? You see, prior to that question, and and from that question onward, we see God at work in the book of Exodus. He's at work revealing himself to Pharaoh, and he's at work revealing himself to the Israelites, answering that very question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Recall how the Lord has already revealed himself throughout the book of Exodus. Early on, we 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 see God at work revealing his miraculous power to Moses when when he takes Moses' staff and he turns it into a snake, and he and he takes Moses' hand and he fills it with leprosy. We then see God reveals himself to Pharaoh in a mighty way by by administering plagues and then retracting plagues. God further reveals himself to Pharaoh and the Israelites in his authority over creation as God parts the Red Sea so that the Israelites can, can walk through on dry land. But then just as easily, God orders it close, sweeping Pharaoh's army away. God reveals his, his ability to provide for the Israelites in producing clean water on two different occasions. Once from a piece of wood and once from a rock. God reveals his ability to sustain the Israelites for 40 years God provided manna from heaven to eat and in Deuteronomy we read that that in those 40 years God provided clothes and sandals that didn't wear out on, on a daily basis God reveals his presence to the Israelites in a in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night and, and let us not forget when when God first revealed himself to Moses from a from a burning bush God proceeds to tell Moses he has chosen him to to lead his people, the Israelites, to a place where they would live as his treasured possession. And Moses responds to God, he says, but suppose they ask me, who is this God? What is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are saying to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God Doesn't respond with his name. He doesn't respond with his credentials. God simply replies, I am. Here's what God was telling Moses. He says, Moses, you can't relate to me like anything or anyone else. I'm beyond categories. I'm beyond descriptions. I'm beyond words. You, You can't grasp where I came from or how I came to be. I just am. Throughout the book of of Exodus, God is at work revealing Himself to Moses, to Pharaoh, to the Israelites, and, and might I say to us as well. For for we must also answer that question for ourselves this morning. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And so with that introduction, let's go to our text this morning. Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. Beginning in verse 8, it says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held his, his hands up, the Israelites prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and, and, and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Surely you have heard the expression, when it rains it pours some of you might be in a rainy season right now and it it has nothing to do with the weather you're stuck at home and the kids are off the hook and your your last zoom meeting crashed and and the laundry's piling up but the the washing machine is broken and you can't go to work yet. the bills keep pouring in and, and everywhere you turn it's just seemingly more bad news All of us have been there when, seemingly, nothing goes right and everything goes wrong. Just one bad thing after another. When one trial ends, another begins. If that's you this morning, then I want you to know that you have company, because that's exactly what God's chosen people, the Israelites, are experiencing in our text this morning. For for 430 years, they lived in in bondage of Egyptian slavery, where they were forced to do hard labor. Then in being rescued, they're pursued by Pharaoh's army. They escape through the Red Sea only to find themselves wandering in a dry desert where there's no food, there's no water, and they're hungry and thirsty. And we know that those conditions must have been bad because they desired to be back in slavery again. Even the back-breaking bondage of the Egyptians looked good to them. And some of you, some of you know that feeling well. Because you've been experiencing forced time together with your family for the last two months. For for two months you've been confined to this small space with stir-crazy children and you've gotten to know your spouse better than you ever thought you knew you could or would. And and you're about to go out of your mind if this lockdown doesn't last even one more moment. And and in that moment, how many of you have thought or how many of you have even maybe just verbalized the statement, I'm ready to go back to work. Bring on the 10-hour days. I don't care. I don't care if I'm overworked and underpaid. I just got to get out of here. That was the thought of the Israelites, but multiplied by 100. If we only had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, at least there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you've brought us into this desert to starve to death. Really, Moses, you brought us up out of Egypt so that we and our children and our livestock would die of thirst? I mean, come on, Moses, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? That was the question that the people of Israel tested the Lord with at the end of our text from last week. And so if we want to get a full understanding of our passage this morning, we really need to go back up and just prior to verse 8 and recall the question at the end of verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? Recall that That was the question. That was the verse that Pastor Tim last week said that truly revealed the heart of the Israelites. Perhaps this question has been one that has revealed your heart as well. When life doesn't go your way, when you're in that that rainy season and it's just one bad thing after another, when you have all the problems but none of the answers, who do you blame? Who do you question? Where are you, God? I don't think the Lord really cares about me or I or I wouldn't have lost my job. I don't think the Lord really loves me or I, I wouldn't have been diagnosed with cancer. God, I don't think you're really in this because life just really stinks right now. These are, these are some really heart-wrenching questions that, that cut straight to some deep struggles we have for the faith. But, but what I... I But what i hope to bring out in our text this morning is that the answer to each of those questions finds their end in one person jesus christ and the answer to those questions is a resounding yes the lord is among us he does see and he does care and he does love us this morning i have three points that i want to share with you from our text through which i believe god will once again Answer the question from last week, is the Lord among us or not? The title of my message this morning is A Sword, A Staff, A Banner. And, and so I, I want to spend our time this morning focusing on these three object lessons from our story. But first we need, we need to a bit of background information. We, we see here at the beginning of our text, we learn that the Amalekite army came and they attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. And there are a few things we need to understand about the Amalekites. First of all, the Amalekites were a nomadic people who took their name from Amalek, who was a grandson of Esau. You, you might recall from Scripture that, that the Amalekites continue to resurface time and again in conflict with Israel. F- from the first attack we read about here in Exodus 17, through, through the time of, of Saul and David in 1 Samuel, and, and even as late as the time of Esther, at the time at the end of the Old Testament period, The the Amalekites keep resurfacing. Throughout Old Testament history, the Amalekites were at war with God's chosen people. Secondly, we must understand the nature of this attack. The the Amalekites engaged in the war against the Israelites in a very cowardly way. You see, this was no ordinary military battle. The The attack was unprovoked. The Israelites did nothing to warrant such an attack. And worse still, the Amalekites ambushed the Israelite army from the rear. They they attacked them from the back of the pack. Who who would be at the end of such a massive group of people? Old people and and children and pregnant women and, and crippled people and the sick and the weak and the weary we 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 don't have to speculate. We get we get to read about this attack in Deuteronomy 25. Listen as I read Deuteronomy 25: 7 through 19, 17 through 19. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord God has has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. The Amalekites were were vicious, wicked people. They they had no fear of God. In in fact, it was quite the opposite. They they preyed upon the most helpless of God's chosen people. You, You begin to get a better understanding of of why God deals so severely with them throughout Scripture, so, so much so that in the conclusion of our story, we read in verse 14, God says, "I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven." God says, "I'm, I'm going to wipe out that entire group of people." And so to this end, Moses, he, he appoints a man by the name of Joshua to respond to this attack from the Amalekites. And, and we know nothing else about Joshua at this point. Later we'll know much. In fact, there's, a, there's an entire book of the Bible that bears his name. And, and we'll come to find that Joshua is Moses' right-hand man. He's, that he will be Moses' successor. That he's the, the and captain of the Israelite army. But right now we know nothing about Joshua. He's simply a man whom, whom Moses appoints to defend Israel against the Amalekites. Verse 9 says, So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill and with the staff of God in my hand. Kind of, a, kind of an odd statement by God's appointed leader, isn't it? Hey Joshua, s- select some, some men from among all the Israelite men with no military experience. It, it's okay if they're still a little bit grouchy and their morale a little bit low, but, but select the best of the worst, you know. Go go out and and fight these nomadic marauders on their own turf with these men. Oh, and by the way, if you need me, Joshua, I'll be up on the hill over there with my stick. You you see, from outside looking in, the the odds of winning this fight are overwhelmingly not in Joshua's favor. But but what we're seeing here is, is God's divine providence. Remember, God has intentionally led the Israelites to this place. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 17 confirms that. God has led them to raphidim where he's once again about to test the Israelites. But like so many times before, God places the Israelites in an uncomfortable, even impossible situation for a purpose. God was about to teach the Israelites a little bit more about themselves and a whole lot more about himself. And sometimes God will, will put us in uncomfortable, even impossible situations for a purpose as well. For, for in the same way that God tested the Israelites so that they might see their need for Him, God may be testing you as well. God wastes nothing. He wastes no trial and he wastes no pain. In, in fact, he, he uses these things for His glory and your edification. Right now, at this very moment, God has a purpose for the trial that you're facing. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so the stage has been set. Joshua did as Moses told him. He picks his men and he fights Amalek and the Amalekites. Interestingly, we, we find Moses, just as he said as well, standing on the hill overlooking the battle. He has his staff in his hand and his, and his arms raised. And, and what we see here in the text is that as long as Moses' arms were raised, the Israelites prevailed in the battle. But, but when Moses, lower, Moses lowered his hands, the Amalekites began to overtake the Israelites. And so when Moses' arms grew tired, as you might have guessed they would... Aaron, who was Moses' brother and the high priest of the Israelites, and their companion Hur, who we know very little about as well, took a stone and they they placed it under Moses. And and Moses sat down, and, and, and Aaron and Hur stood beside him holding up his arms. Brothers and sisters, there's an obvious lesson here for all of us, and it's simply this Whose arms are you holding up? Who are you supporting in our body? Who are you right now, social distancing and all, who are you encouraging? Who who are you praying for? And on the flip side of that, who is supporting and encouraging you? Oh, to have the support of, of fellow brothers and sisters around you, encouraging you when you're weak, holding you up when you can't stand on your own. All this week, I have been so blessed with brothers in Christ emailing and, and texting me about my sermon. Even the, this morning, I got a text: "Hey, how's it going? Hey, I'm praying for you. H- how can I help you? Go get them, Tiger." Won't say who that one was from. I, I can't explain how comforting it is to know that others in the body are, are bearing my burdens. And what we see here in the text is that due to Aaron and her support, Moses' hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. And so before we, we finish the remaining part of the story, I want to I pause here and ask, what are we taking away from all of this? R- recall that I said there, there are three object lessons that I want to pull out and expand upon in this story. And the first object is the sword. The sword. Point, point number one of my message this morning is this. The sword reveals to us that we cannot be passive in the battle. The sword reveals to us that we cannot be passive in the battle. O- unlike at the Red Sea, God instructs his people to play an active role in their own defense. At the Red Sea, the people of God were to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Here in Rephidim, the people are called to fight in response to the Amalekites. And they themselves must be faithful in defending Israel against their attackers. And, and, and you say, well, that, well, that's all fine and dandy, but, but we get that. I, I mean, you didn't really need to tune in this morning. Like, like this is, there's no great revelation here. Oh, I better write that one down. If I'm ever attacked by the Amalekites, I should pick up my sword and fight and not be passive. I Check that off my list this morning. And, and so let, let me make point number one a bit more personal for us this morning. I want to add two words to the end of point number one. I want to add these words. At the end of point number one, I want to add the two words, against sin. Point number one again, the sword reveals to us that we cannot be passive in the battle against sin. Look, let, let, let's face it, we, we aren't going to fight the Amalekites this week. Lord willing, we, we probably aren't going to physically fight anyone at all. So, so who is our battle with? Why, why must we worry about not being passive? Well, what enemy are, are we really fighting and what kind of sword must we wield? Ephesians 6, 12 says this. It says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, I... I can assure you that the Amalekites will not attack you from behind this week, but the spiritual forces of evil will. Some of you are being attacked at this very moment and you don't even know it. Why? Because your attacker doesn't look like Amalek and his nomadic tribe. And your attacker doesn't look like the devil this morning. Your attacker is more subtle than that. Your attacker looks like doubt and fear. Your attacker looks like stress and anxiety. Your attacker looks like lust. Your attacker looks like greed. Your attacker maybe looks like pride or or anger. Your attacker looks like sin. Friends, at this very moment, there is a, a spiritual battle raging for your souls, and it touches every area of our lives It touches our our families, our relationships, our church, our work, our schools, our neighborhoods. And we need to understand that there's no part of our lives over which the adversary doesn't want to exercise influence over us. Every single day, there's a battle raging in how we spend our time, how we spend our money, what we look at on our phones, how we talk to our spouses, how we obey our parents. What we do when we think no one's looking. In every single aspect of our lives, in every moment, Satan wants to wreck your character. He wants to destroy your relationships. He wants to steal your purity. He wants to compromise your integrity. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to reign in the hearts of your children. We are involved in a spiritual war all the time. Just, just think about the many references where the Bible talks about our lives. Just, just jot these down. I'm going to go through them rather quickly, but you can just jot down the reference and, and check them later. Hebrews 12.4. Hebrews 12.4 says, We're in a constant struggle against sin. 1 Peter 2.11. 1 Peter 2.11 says, We're in a war within our souls. Jude 3. Jude 3 says, We're contending for the faith. Philippians 1.30 says we're, we're struggling for the gospel. In both 1 Timothy 6.12 and 2 Timothy 4.7 it says we're fighting for the faith. And, and these are just a sample of how the Bible describes our everyday lives. We, we, we sometimes think that, that spiritual warfare happens when there's something out of the ordinary going on. But, but in reality, your involvement in, in, in spiritual warfare and my involvement in spiritual warfare began the day we were born. And we can't ignore this war. The Bible doesn't say ignore the devil and he'll flee from you. It says resist the devil and he'll flee from you, James 4.7. Friends, if, if we try to avoid this war, if we try to just sit back in a, a lazy, apathetic, comfortable Christianity, pretending like there is no struggle to be had or war to be fought, then we will not stand. Fortunately for us, in the same chapter from which I read, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Just prior to that, we read this. Ephesians 6, 10 and 11 says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I don't have time this morning to to go into Ephesians 6 and unpack all of the armor of God, but I will say this much. There is one offensive weapon that we have, only one offensive weapon at our disposal, and we find it at the end of verse 17. It says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We've got to be in the Word of God if we're going to combat this spiritual war. We've got to be in the Word of God if we're going to fight the spiritual battle. We can't be passive in that. We can't be flippant in our daily quiet time in Bible reading. And so just to bring point number one to completion, I'll say this. If the sword reveals to us that we cannot be passive in the battle of sin, then we must wield the only sword that we have at our disposal. That is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Object lesson number one, the sword. Object lesson number two, the staff. Point number two, the staff refocuses us to God's power and presence in the midst of the fight. The staff refocuses us to God's power and presence in the midst of the fight. As we mentioned earlier, isn't it interesting that Israel's number one man is sidelined during this battle? He's reduced to standing on a hill and and raising his staff heavenward. But but as we read on, we we see just how crucial Moses and his staff were to the victory. This was the the same staff that Moses used to deliver the Hebrews from Egypt. It it was the same staff that Pastor Tim talked about last week that that struck the rock at Rephidim. You see, the the staff is both a symbol of, of the power and the presence of God. It's a a physical sign of the might that God wields on behalf of Israel. The lifted staff served to to bolster the faith and encourage the fearful hearts of Israel as they warred against the Amalekites. Let's make no mistake about it, this this was not a magic staff in any way, nor was Moses' posture somehow lifting up magical prayers. The staff simply refocuses the Israelites' attention to where it needed to be, On God. Yes, the Israelites needed to wield their sword. Yes, they needed to engage in the battle. Yes, Aaron and Hur were instrumental in holding up the hands of Moses. But make no mistake about it this morning. It was the power and presence of God that won the fight. It is God who's fighting for Israel. His power is going to be more important than theirs. And thus, he is the one they should depend on for victory. And he is the one whom they should give worship and glory to. See how important the power and presence of God is to our battle. Do you recall in Scripture the next time the Israelites fought with the Amalekite army? It was, it was at Hormah, and the outcome was much different. Listen as I read from Numbers 14 39 through 45. Numbers 14 39 through 45. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning, and they went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We'll go up to the place that the Lord promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned your back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. And then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. What, what's, what's the difference? What, why was there success at Rephidim and, and defeat at Horma? The power and presence of God was evident in the first and absent in the second. When, when we know, when we know that God is with us, that it's by his power we are saved, our faith is strengthened. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Friends, what, what a great encouragement for us this morning as well. That, that the only hope that you and I have in, in battling sin is not by our own power and not by our own might, but by the power and the presence of God. Well, what, what, power, what does the power and the presence of God look like in our lives? What does the, the power and presence of God look like in the life of a believer? It looks like the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Object lesson number one, the sword. Object lesson number two, the staff. Object lesson number three, the banner. Point number three, the banner reminds us of God's promise that he will and has overcome on our behalf. The banner reminds us of God's promise that he will and has overcome on our behalf. Verse 14 of our text says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Oh, see, church, the picture unfolding in Scripture here. The the Lord tells Moses to write this victory down. Friends, excuse me, I can assure you that when the Lord says to write something down, it must be important. It, It must be something that we should sit up and take notice of, something to be remembered. Write this down as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. You know, the, the translation here really doesn't do the text justice. And instead of the word recite, what we're, what we're really seeing here is drum it into the ears of Joshua. Joshua, take note. Though you rallied the troops, though you wielded the sword in the fight, though Aaron and Hur supported the arms of Moses, it was the Lord who won the battle. Moses, write this down. Make it clear, years from now, when my people want to test me, when they want to question, is the Lord among us, have Joshua remember this day that I, the Lord, am the victor. I, the Lord, will blot out the memory of Amalek. I, the Lord, am the the defender of my people. Reading on in verse 15, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. Saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The the, the Lord is my banner. Perhaps when you read this, your mind goes to the first place that mine did when I read it. When I hear the word banner, I think of a a high school gymnasium adorned with banners on the walls. These flag-like signs are draped all around gyms. and They they denote like conference championships and undefeated seasons and school records and, and state championships. And and even to this day, when I I travel to away volleyball matches with my daughter, my my eyes are immediately drawn to the banners on the wall of these opposing schools. And and what I do, I often look at the opposing team, I look specifically for volleyball banners, because I want to know what kind of trouble we're in that night. You you see, when, when you see a banner and it's full of winning seasons and state championships and all these dates you know that that program has a storied tradition in those respective sports. The, the, the reputation of the current team is preceded by those who have, who have gone before and who have dominated. And, and as silly as it seems, it, it almost gives the home team a psychological edge when their banner is full of years of tradition and success. You want to see our credentials? You you want to see what we're all about? Look at our banner. See our successes. Get a taste of what you're about to mess with. If that's what you are thinking when you see banner here in the text, then you aren't that far off. You you see, a banner in ancient times was basically a flag or a standard that that bore the insignia of a king and his army. It, It denoted the strength and the majesty and the splendor of this king and his army who rode under that banner furthermore when the when the banner was flown it would serve as a rallying point to gather the people together it would be a call to assemble the army well, when the banner was lifted up all those who chose to ride under that banner would then identify with everything that the banner symbolized to, to ride under a certain king's banner meant that you served under this king and that you were part of his strong and majestic army And so when when Moses builds an altar and he names it Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner, he is declaring that God is the banner that waves over his people. God is the standard of his people. Get this, it doesn't say that Moses was waving some banner or carrying some flag with God's name on it. That isn't what the text says at all. The text says the Lord is my banner. A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. No no longer would there be need to ask, is the Lord among us or not? God is the flag who rallies and protects his chosen people. And anyone who chooses to lay a hand on those under that banner chooses to do so by their own demise. To, To declare war on God's chosen people is to declare war on God himself. Friends, we, we need to see the, the bigger picture unfolding here this morning. That, that word banner is an interesting word, and it's used throughout the Old Testament in various ways. But, but I want to draw your, to, your attention to, to one verse in Isaiah. It says this, Isaiah 11.10 says, In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. I'll read that again. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. You see, this banner analogy has deeper implications than than God simply protecting his people from warrior tribes who wish to do them harm. The, The prophet Isaiah speaks of a day in the future when the root of Jesse will stand as a banner. Who, who is the root of Jesse? None other than Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus Christ is our banner. I love the way that Pastor Thabiti on Yibele describes Jesus Christ as our banner. I simply can't do it better, so I'm going to quote him. And, and I can assure you of this, that if anyone who knows who Pastor Thabiti is, I'm not going to do the quote justice either. But I, but I just listen as I read the words of Pastor Thabiti. Jesus is the banner of the Lord. Jesus is the king riding into the fray. He is the banner waving in the wind. He is the insignia of God's kingdom. He's the imprenata of God's power. He's the emblem of God's glory. And he comes and he plants the flag of that banner on Calvary's hill. When that cross is nailed into the ground and Christ is raised up on it, the banner of God bringing salvation to the world is being raised and that banner still waves in the wind. Christ is the banner of God and he fights the battle of his people and most supremely he fights the battle against the evil one, he fights the battle against the wicked one, he fights the battle against Satan and all of his minions he crushes Satan, he crushes death, he crushes sin he removes the judgment of God against the world for its sin and he stands now as the flag calling the nations come to me, gather assemble, the banner has been raised, salvation has come Christ Jesus is that banner that Moses spoke of. He is the banner which is the root of Jesse. He is that banner that saves men and calls men onto the glory of God. Friends, if, if you're listening this morning and, and you've not yet run under this banner, n- know this, that, that right now, at this very moment, Jesus Christ is beckoning you to come. He's beckoning you to assemble. We read where Jesus himself says in John 12, 32, he says, And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Friends, the the good news this morning is this that that God does see, and God does care, and God does love. You, You say, How do you know? Because God gave his own son for us. God's own son, Jesus Christ, came to this earth to live the perfect life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we couldn't avoid. And and on that cross at Calvary, Jesus Christ took all of your sins and all of my sins and, and in bearing those sins, the wrath of God that was due us is poured out on him. God killed his own son in our place. The righteous for the unrighteous. The just for the unjust. Jesus took our death that we might gain his life. But praise God that the story doesn't end there because three days later, even death could not hold him. Our Redeemer lives. We serve a risen Savior. Who, Who is this God that I should obey him? He is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Some will trust in horses. Some will trust in chariots. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we just praise you for the sacrifice of your one and only Son who who came and lived that, that perfect life and died the death that was ours. God, help us to to see that. Let that be the lens through which we look at everything else in this life. Let that be the lens by which we we look at other people and have a desire to encourage and hold up and pray for. Let that be the lens through which we, we look at sin in our lives, God. Let that be the lens through which we we have a desire to dig into your word and have quiet time. Oh, God, not that we could ever repay you, not that we do it in some kind of legalistic way. God, as if we could ever earn our salvation, we know we, we can't. Forgive us for trying where we do. But, God, that, that we would see you, the risen Christ, as supreme, And that we would run under that banner. And there we'll find a God who loves us and cares for us and protects us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for truth. We thank you most of all for your son. To him be the glory. In your son's name. Amen.